Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I want to welcome you to week three of our class on conversion. It's a seven-week uh, class, so if you're uh, joining us, um, we are today focusing on uh, repentance and faith. My name is Ryan Boudreau. You have two Ryans teaching you in this class. Last name is ending in B. So I wanted to begin with thinking about um, the relationship with theology and doxology. You know, um, it's, it's always good in this kind of more, more maybe we would call it intellectual setting where we're in a class or it's a classroom setting. It's always good to remind ourselves why we want to study these things of God's word. Okay. Um, I don't know for sure. Um, but all of us in this room, by God's grace, have been given light, have been given eyes to see. We all have been brought from darkness and planted into the kingdom of God, and we are now light, as it says in Ephesians 4. Um, so that means that all of this is not just a head exercise. It's not just intellectual. It means that there's doxology from it, where we are returning praise to God, and we are glad in our hearts. Now, saying all of that, <clears throat> we can <clears throat> excuse me we can come into a class and not feel it in our hearts you know we just woke up we maybe haven't had coffee and we're just kind of cold and so that's why um the psalmist says in psalm 103 and i thought this would be a good place to start where he he is charging his own soul he's telling his soul um to bless the lord he says bless the lord O my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Okay, so he's saying, remember. It's a common theme in scripture. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember how he took you out of Egypt. And he, you who were once not a people are now a people. Okay, um, and now he goes on to list all of the benefits. And it's not even all of them, but he's listing all these glorious benefits. He says, who forgives all your iniquities who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Going down farther, it says, um, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So as we come into the class, we may be feeling cold, maybe not. Maybe you've woken up and you're glad in the Lord, but um, may we come before the Lord and ask him to um, help us to remember and we charge our own soul. Soul, wake up. You know, like that song, Awake my soul and sing of him who died for me. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and before we start considering uh, these truths. Father, we're thankful for um, all of the benefits that you provide in Christ. We're thankful that you are our greatest benefit and that all of these other things um, only work to serve the fact that we have you and that we have been brought out of darkness into light, and we, we have uh, you as the great object of our faith and, and our affection. Help us now, even if we don't even uh, desire, Lord, the things of God, and this is merely intellectual, help us to, by faith, press forward, and please grant us uh, a right response to all of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
All right. I've always liked, I've always liked the, um, the, the in Scripture where it talks about uh, a big change happening. You have uh, two of my favorite texts probably in the Gospels are John 9, where you have the blind man from birth and Jesus puts mud on his eyes and washes and he can see. <clears throat> and you have this dramatic response to the Pharisees where they're saying, well, what happened? He's like, well, I once was blind, I washed, and now I see. Okay, you have that. You also have Luke 15 where it's the prodigal son. Probably my favorite, my favorite um, story in the Gospels. Um, where, you know, at the end of it, the, the older son is saying, um, I've worked all these years, I've done all this, and I've never disobeyed you. You haven't even given me a goat that I can go and feast with my friends. And, and he said, the father says to him, um, all that I have is yours. He's like, but your brother was dead and is alive again. Category shift, complete. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So there's like this, I've always been, I've always loved, and I know you love, the, that shifting, that category shift of like you were blind and now you see. You had no faculties or perception, no capacity to be able to take in the glory. Like Ryan was talking last week about the painting in a cave. It's there. It's glorious. You cannot partake of it at all. Cannot see the excellencies of it at all unless you've been given eyes to see, unless light enters and floods the soul. And the same thing with lostness. If you, if you are lost and you're wandering, it's not until God picks you up and places you on the rock and you are on a firm foundation and you can actually you can actually be with the Lord okay um, so in conversion it's the same sort of thing um, it's wonderful to see this sort of paradigm shift this category shift that we all need I mean that's that's probably the big takeaway in all of this is the necessity of this change Okay, it's not, it's not good enough to heal the wound lightly. It's not good enough, like as we're going to see, to just amend certain parts of our natural being. That's, that doesn't cut deep enough. It doesn't undercut as far as it needs to go to pull it out by the root. It has to go down deep and make us a new thing altogether. Okay, so a couple questions for you I wanted to begin with. One question is, what are some reasons why it's important to understand the doctrine of conversion? Why is it important? Why should we set, study this? Don't put Ryan in this position. Everything's going to go back to Ryan. I'm going to say, okay, man. Is it important? Is it something that we should be studying? Is it, is it important to get it right? Or maybe I'll say it this way. What are some dangers of getting this doctrine wrong? What kind of pitfalls do we have? Sure. It might confuse our evangelism. In what way? What, what way could that go off? Right, right. That's right. So he's saying that um, our evangelism might amount to something very light 
instead of the weightiness of the, the full change from death to life. Anybody else? Why is it important to study the doctrine of conversion or what are some dangers of getting it wrong? Mm-hmm. That's right. 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 So not just for our, not just for others in evangelism, but for ourselves, because Paul charges us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, and we need to have the same view of what salvation looks like in us that the Bible has, that God has. Very good, very good. So kind of to give a brief recap of where we are in the process so far in our class, uh, week one we talked about the necessity of conversion. We, we talked about that slogan, new, not nice. Okay, it's not enough just to be moral, it's not enough just to be nice. But there needs to be a fundamental change. We too, we talked about, um, Ryan taught it on saved, not sincere. It's not a question of whether you're sincere. Like nice and sincere are good things, and those things should be coming out of Christians. But that's not the issue when we're talking about conversion. Conversion can't just lay on the surface. It has to, it has to talk about, no, you were dead, and you need to be made alive. Okay, And so Ryan in that week talked about how conversion is all of God from beginning to end. Okay. <clears throat> this week, we're going to talk about um, the slogan, Disciples, Not Decisions, um, and subtitle, The Character of Our Response. Okay. So what's interesting about, about this particular thing is that there, are, there is a train of thought in Christianity in America, where we think that the gospel call goes out, and it is a mere, you need to decide this day, decide what you're going to do, as if it is a sales pitch that is responded to um, for a car, or it's a sales pitch for the, for the timeshare that you're listening to, and, and it, it is that merely. Um, and what we're hopefully going to do is kind of go through and see, well, what is, what is is that enough? Is it merely a decision? Is deciding even part of the thing? So we're going to talk about that. First, I wanted to look at Matthew 28. The Great Commission that we know so well. It says, Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The emphasis in this particular scripture is that we are to go, therefore, and make disciples. This is what God wants. So the question is, what is a disciple? Um, do we just want to make, go and make decisions? Okay, come through an area, preach the gospel, people raise their hand, come forward, and decisions are made. Are we, are we aiming for that? Or are we aiming for, we want 
actual change in a person. A person to go from a non-disciple, someone who doesn't care about God, someone who doesn't follow Jesus, and now wants to devour Scripture, now wants to know God, now loves God. Okay, that category shift. Um, so kind of the overarching point that I want to emphasize, emphasize today is decision alone, mere decision, is not enough. We need a fundamental change, like it says in Ephesians 2, which we'll read in a moment. Um, we need to become disciples. So once God makes a sinner alive in Christ, which is regeneration, when he regenerates a sinner, God then works to produce biblical repentance and faith, which is conversion. Um, can I have a volunteer to read uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10? Anyone? Thank you so much. Yes, please. Right, thank you. Yeah, I mean, so that text is such a, a key go-to text for this whole discussion on salvation. Because really what we're looking at is we're, we're, we're looking at a sort of a section of the whole scheme of salvation. Um, there's this sort of theological term called the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. I'm sure you guys have heard of it, where um, you talk about like, well, what order does God save a person in from beginning to end? How does that work? You know, and so you have something like God elects a person, and then he calls a person, then he regenerates a person, then he converts a person, they repent and believe, then they're justified, they're adopted, they're sanctified, they're glorified. And that whole work is a God saved them in eternity past did save them at a particular time, and it will save them in the end. And salvation, that whole package of salvation, is a monergistic, unilateral work of God. God does it from beginning to end. Okay? And so, um, that is the kind of category shift that we're talking about. God, someone outside of us, like an, like an alien meaning outside of us, um, um, sovereign work of God reaches in to our hopeless lives where we had no hope, there was no possible way that we could save ourselves, that we would want God, as the scriptures make clear. Um, and God comes in and intervenes and changes us completely. Um, some hymns, hymns I wanted to consider, I think it would be good to kind of touch on today, are um, that hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. We'll get to that. Um, an another one is, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. I think that's a very good hymn that kind of outlines what faith is, what true biblical faith is. And like Ryan talked about last week, and can it be, verse 3, where um, you see the picture of the person who is 
is in a dungeon. He's fully chained up, and everything is completely dark, you know. And it says, mine eye, um, uh, how's it go? My eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? You know, there is this, God has to come in and flood with light. So um, we're going to focus on repentance and faith today. And repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin, okay? You don't have one without the other. There is a, the repentance is a turning away from sin, your old life, and a turning to God. So it's all in one motion. It's, it's, it's two sides of the same. You don't have one without the other. In scripture, it's, it's, broke, it's kind of conveyed um, together sometimes. Sometimes it's conveyed separately. Sometimes it's conveyed in a way that looks like maybe we're working, but that's not, necess- that, that's not the case. So like together, for example, um, when repentance and faith are together, you see Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus, he's been baptized, he goes out and he preaches, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Acts 19.4 says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come, that is Jesus. Acts 11.21 says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 20.21 says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lots of texts having to couple, where it couples repentance and faith together in the proclamation of the gospel message. Um, there are also places where it's kind of assumed that faith is a part of it, but repentance is the only thing that's named. So you see Acts 3.19, it says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Well, you ask, well, where's the faith in that? Is you just need to repent? Well, the idea is that repentance and faith go hand in hand. And it's assumed in that particular one. Uh, Romans 1.16, uh, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Um, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Well, what about repentance? Well, repentance is hand in hand with belief, so it, it's in there, it's assumed. Um, and then there are certain texts where uh, maybe some sticky text where we're just like, well, what does that mean? So, um, for example, in um, Acts 2.38, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I need to repent of my sins and be baptized. Is, is, is it talking about I need to do something? Well, that's not the point. The point is that the act of faith is baptism. Baptism represents that faith-filled person now moving forward after they have repented. Okay, it goes hand in hand. Acts 26.20 says that they, Jew and Gentile, should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Okay, so I repent and turn to God and I perform deeds. That sounds like works righteousness, right? Isn't that how... But the idea is that the person who has faith will work. That's how it is. It's not what, it's not what saves, but it is the result of the salvation. 
So those are different texts where those go together or they're, in, they're, they're laid out separately. But one thing to note on both repentance and faith is that both are gifts, okay? We read um, in Ephesians chapter 2 that by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, meaning the faith is a gift of God. The grace is a gift of God. The faith is a gift of God. It's a gift. In and of ourselves, we can by faith sit on a chair as all of you are doing right now and be like, I'm not hitting the ground right now. I'll be just fine. But that is com- categorically different than hearing the gospel preached and trusting in Christ by faith. It's a different thing. I can go up to a light switch and flip it on and be like, that light's coming on. But that is categor- categorically different than me hearing the truth of the gospel and resting in it fully and wholly. So that's why some people say, well, faith, it's within me. No, it's not. Not that kind. Not the kind that, re- that repents of sin that I once loved and relies solely on Christ alone. It's categorically different. And also repentance is a gift. Acts 11.8 says, And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So even repentance itself, the turning, the act of turning away from sin, is a gift from the Lord. So let's, according to your outline, you'll see the section on repentance. We're going to talk about repentance, what it is not, and then we're going to look at what it is. Can I have a volunteer to read 2 Corinthians 7.10, please? I'm going to choose my daughter if you guys don't do it. Thank you, Ryan. Okay. Last week, Ryan talked, thank you, brother. Last week, Ryan talked about um, part of the conversion experience is remorse, okay? That could be true remorse, and that that could be just remorse over, like, the effects of sin. It, It could be a godly remorse. It could be an ungodly remorse motivated by something else, okay? So this particular text is talking about worldly sorrow, a sorrow that is not the categorical kind that we're talking about, like, in conversion, but having a worldly sorrow all that produces downstream is death. That's leading to damnation. That's where it goes if, if it's worldly sorrow. On the other hand, you have, um, which we'll get to, godly sorrow, which produces repentance leading to life. It's, it's different, categorically, categorically different. So what repentance is not? Uh, repentance is not mere remorse. It is remorse, but it's not mere remorse. It's a kind of remorse. It's, not a, it's a mere remorse. Um, repentance is not a mere remorse over the difficulties of life, how things are going, or the consequences of my sin. Um, as, as bad as we would feel about that, um, it is not merely that. Um, Repentance is not a mere change in behavior, divorced from a fundamental change wrought by God. Okay, so um, 
it's not just a change in what we say. Oh, I don't cuss like I used to anymore, or I don't take the Lord's name in vain, which is a common thing that we hear. Um, or it's not just a stopping what I used to do. Or I don't live with my girlfriend anymore, or I, I don't do drugs, or I don't hide things from my parents like I used to, that kind of thing. It's not merely those things. Um, it's not merely a what I'm starting to do. I, I'll, I go to church now. Uh, I started reading my Bible now. Those kinds of things. It's not merely those things. Oh, I, I go and feed the homeless now. Okay? Um, it's not the, um, a mere resolution, New Year's resolution approach where it's like, I'm going to really pull up my bootstraps this year. Um, I'm really going to get right with God this year. Okay? Um, so it's not merely those things. If God has not converted a person, this kind of repentance at best produces whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside, but on the inside, filled with dead men's bones and everything unclean. Without conversion, um, the person in that state of going back to church, while it's awesome that they're there, unless there's true godly sorrow that leads to repentance, is merely um, uh, there. Well, unless God is like drawing them and doing that, but they're really in a state of enmity with God still. Okay, it's healing the wound too lightly to think that that is enough. Good that they're in church. May God open their eyes to see, but until he does that, the person who comes and is comfortable still in their sin, loves to hang out in their sin, but is coming to church, they're still whitewashed tombs, and they need to be pulled out of the grave. Completely, a category shift, completely out of the grave. Um, the unconverted man is by definition an idolater. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. There is no stopping it. Just, you guys ever see that um, I Love Lucy where the chocolates are on the conveyor belt and she's working to try to package it and it's just going too fast and she starts stuffing it down her shirt and eating them and they're falling on the floor. That's how idols are out of our hearts all day long without Christ. And to be honest with you, and I'm sure you can attest, that is the way our body of death still remains with us. We are still in this flesh, and that is what we have to contend with, except the difference is we have a different relationship with our, with our sin now. It's not that we don't have sin, right? Uh, obviously, but we have a different relationship with our sin. Our posture is different. Our inclinations are different. Now we have like this mallet to just crush it and this, this ax to cut its head off. That is our posture towards sin. There, there still is the effect of like, oh, I really, I really enjoy this. But that only lasts so long for the believer. The believer has an inclination to pull out that sword and just go whack. Okay? So that is what repentance is not. And let's talk about what repentance is. The Greek word really fundamentally talks about a change of mind, which is a little bit, it seems a little light because change of mind sort of seems like the decision thing. You know, it's, it's like, oh, I'm just changing my mind. Like, I changed my mind. I'm not wearing that. I'm wearing that. I'm changing my mind. I don't want to go to that restaurant. I want to go to this restaurant. But it's not merely that kind of change of mind. It, it, what it's talking about is a fundamental shift of thinking. The disposition of the soul is changed from regeneration, and now the mind is fully bent toward God. Well, is striving to be bent toward God, I should say, because we're never fully bent toward God because we're in this life. Um, there's the constant back and forth, I should say. Um, so 
it, it has to do with a change of worship. I once worshiped the God of this world. Okay, we talked about uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now alive in the sons of disobedience. And we were all by nature children of wrath. Okay, but we no longer follow that anymore. Okay, we now worship the true and living God. And there is a change in our thinking and our desires. Um, I loved what Ryan said last week about, he quoted Jonathan Edwards about the taste of honey. To the unconverted person, um, it's like having no taste buds, okay? You could take honey and put it in a spoon and put it in your mouth, but it's like a soft mush. Um, and you're like, trying, you could try to describe it to someone, but it, there's no sweetness to it. It's just a soft mush in my mouth. It's a ball of mush. Or you can have taste buds and you can actually describe the flavor uh, on your palate um, and, and describe the sweetness. That is the difference between having, in a sense, it's a picture of having a, a, the difference of someone who's unconverted and converted. Um, there is an inclination and a desire for God. Um, it's a change of allegiance. If you guys have ever read Pilgrim's Progress, um, at the beginning of the book, you see Christian not in the state of enjoying the world, but he's in this anxious state of, I'm a sinner, what do I do? Okay. And later on, you, you see on the king's highway, in the Valley of Humiliation, he's fighting Apollyon. And in that, in that moment, Apollyon is Satan. And in that moment, um, he's basically bringing up to Christian that you belong back in my city. That's where you're from. That's where your allegiance lies. And, and Christian is fighting by faith, saying, I've left your city. You're not my king. Not anymore. Okay? And it's a, it's a shift in allegiance to Christ. Not out of willpower, mere willpower. It's a, I have been picked up out of the mire, and I have been set upon a rock, which is completely different than just mere willpower. Um, it's also important to... to um, to talk about repentance as uh, not just in the initial conversion of a person, but also what that looks like daily. One of the marks of someone who's still in Christ, I mean, I shouldn't say it that way. One of the marks that someone has, uh, uh, is a true believer, because no one can fall out of Christ, but if, if, uh, if a person is continually repenting to this day, that is a good sign that a believer is a believer, a professing believer is a believer. Um, what is, the, the question is did, not did I go forward at a crusade or at an altar call or maybe it's not even that kind of thing and it's just, I was at a service, they preached the gospel, I thought I was saved and I, and I started coming to church. The question isn't did you make a decision or did you uh, raise your hand or pray a prayer and that's what I'm looking to. The question is am I continuing on in repentance? Do I still have a posture towards sin that is, it, it repels me. It, it pulls me, but it repels me, and I'm going forth in faith towards Christ. So repentance, repentance is meant to be daily and lifelong, all the way to the end, which is perseverance of the saints, all the way to the end. Um, let's look at Psalm 51. If you guys would turn to Psalm 51. Here's a, an excellent biblical um, look at, at what repentance sounds like out of the mouth of someone who has done it. Psalm 51. 
David after committing adultery with Bathsheba and sending Uriah off to die on the front line. Um, Long after, too long after, he turns from his sin after being corrected by the prophet Nathan and at some point says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The posture of David's heart is even though he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he killed a man, and it is certainly a horizontal thing to do that, his full attention is, I've sinned against you, God. So that, that is part of repentance. It's, it is a, it's easy for us to get caught up in the horizontal aspect of repentance. I'm sorry, man, I did that to you. Or, or deep, I, I deeply offended you, and I'm sorry. That those things that we deal with with one another all of the time. But the, the posture of a believer is primarily toward, I've offended God. I've basically taken a revolver and pointed it at heaven and, and said, I don't care about your laws. Just as an aside, we, do we, if we really think about as believers what sin is actually, what sin actually is before the Lord from a believer, I mean, knowing what we know, uh, all of the doctrine that we have, we've learned, all of the biblical understanding, the understanding of who God is, his excellencies, his sweetness, his beauty, all that he's taken us from and brought us to, all of the forgiveness, all of our sin blotted out, knowing all of that and then sinning. It's crazy. If we see it rightly, it's crazy that we do that. But we do, okay? All the more reason why we must be in the word so that we remember, we remember what we have been taken from. We go back and remember. That's why God is always saying, remember I took you out of Egypt. That's constant theme in scripture. Remember what I did for you. Remember how I did this. And these long accounts, like Stephen going through in Acts chapter 7, just saying, this is what God did all the way up to this point. We have to remember what God has done. Um, so that, that spurs us on to repentance. Um, so like, in summary, both godly and worldly sorrow can produce similar outward effects, right? Um, remorse, change of behavior, what we say, how we act, where we go or not go. Um, I'm not saying that having remorse or having a change in behavior, not doing this or that, not cussing, all of those sorts of things, those are common maybe to both camps. But being converted is an inward, spiritual, God-wrought change of posture away from sin and towards God, inclining um, inclining us in that direction. If you ever are in a, an automatic car, which everyone basically is these days, if you put the car in drive and you just take your foot off the gas, or off the brake, I should say, what does the car do? It inches forward. And there's, there's, you don't have to push the gas, it just goes. It goes slow, it goes. The Christian life is sort of like that in a sense because the Christian is inclined towards the Lord. There is a pull, there's a desire to go that way, even if it's that slow. But there is always some sort of inclination to go towards the Lord, away from sin, towards the Lord. That's for, so, that's, 
some ideas on repentance. I know that's not exhaustive. Does anybody have anything to add to that that we can talk about? An aspect of it that would be good to bring up about repentance? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was the first part? I think I missed the first part. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the drasticness of how we should respond to our sin as a believer. It's not a, um, a coddling thing of our sin. It's drastic. Cut it off. Yeah, exactly, brother. That's it. Yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be taken lightly. It should be like gouge your eye out. Not really, but, but really gouge your eye out cut your hand off. That's how, that's how much we should be hating our sin because we love our Savior. Great point. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am? So um, just to reiterate for the recording, it's easy. It's very important to teach our kids about repentance. It's, it's, not, it's, it's very easy, especially in a home setting, to say, say you're sorry. You need, to say, you need to apologize. There's that kind of like verbiage that comes out. And there's a place for it, but it's like, but how much are we emphasizing like this outward sort of act of saying sorry? It's ma- mind your manners. It's a manner thing. It's, it's a shell outer husk kind of thing, as opposed to a, you've sinned against God. That should be far more weighty than you're sinning against me. And bringing that into the conversation, it's just, I know, I know that I fall short in that. Like, it's just, it's just real easy to, to just make it a horizontal thing a lot of the time. Thank you. That's good. Um, so let's switch over to, uh, from repentance over to faith. Um, so let's look at what faith is not. I'm going to speed this up a little bit. Um, faith is not just knowing the facts about the gospel or the facts about God. Okay? We know from the book of James that the demons also know and they tremble. There is no hope for salvation for them. Um, faith is not uh, a mere agreeing about the facts of the, of the gospel. You know, like Ryan was talking about last week, you can, you can intellectually understand the arguments of the gospel. You can intellectually understand and maybe even articulate to others what the gospel is, who God is, and what his attributes are like. But that is not the same thing as believing in God by faith necessarily. 
It's not just being convinced or sold by someone that you need God like someone would sell life insurance, okay? Like I said earlier, like those dreaded timeshare sorts of sales pitches where you're sitting there and you're just waiting till the end. And there, there is not this, um, there, it, it's not that kind of thing where you're strong-armed. It's not where you're, it's a, it's a mere reasoning, uh, a shift in your reasoning. If only I was smart enough, I'd be able to really understand this and be saved. It's not that kind of thing, okay? It's, a, it's even described in Scripture as a childlike faith, okay? Faith is not mere anxiety over punishment, uh, or I should say faith is not merely just this thing that it's like, uh, I, I, I better do this, I better sign up for this, because if I don't, I'm going to be punished in the end. It's not f- a mere, like, get out of hell free card kind of thing. It's not something that um, I automatically have by osmosis because I'm part of a faith group or a church or some organization or something. Um, faith is not a mere expo- emotional experience, although it can produce that. Okay, Keep in mind, like I said with repentance, these things are part of a believer's experience. But what I'm talking about is that merely these things are not what faith is. It's a category shift. Someone has to be brought from death to life. We have to keep that in mind. So what is faith? Biblical faith is trusting in and relying on God alone. There's a wonderful hymn called um, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. And it opens up like this. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Note that list. Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. So the only thing that, that the believer is leaning on in that song is blood, Jesus' Jesus's blood, Jesus' righteousness, um, wholly leaning on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's all or nothing. So it is a complete and utter trust by faith God-given faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Faith is, in Scripture, is the instrument by which we are justified, that is declared free of all blame um, by by God who is the judge, completely acquitted. Um, Faith is the instrument by which we are justified and counted righteous. We see in uh, Hebrews, not Hebrews, uh, Exodus Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, and also in um, Romans chapter 4, it talks about Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, okay? Um, we see in Romans 1.17, it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, that is, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Um, that, that's the big, this is the big um, mystery solved in scripture. Old Testament, you have holy, holy, holy God, thrice holy God, um, who dwells in inapproachable light, who must be separate from his people because of the sins of the people. Um, There must be mediation and atonement and continual animal sacrifices. Um, But God still says, he can actually still say, you are my people and I am your God. I, I, I accept you. Okay, how could that possibly happen without God just cosmically sweeping our sins and our guilt under the rug and just saying, I forget about it? 
Well, the mystery is solved in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, um, but now the righteousness of God has been shown or manifested apart from keeping the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, Jew and Gentile, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the answer to the mystery. How can God be holy and still accept his people? Because Jesus came and he is the just, he was righteous in our stead. And he's the one who makes us righteous because he died and then rose from the dead and applied salvation to us, righteousness to us by faith that we receive by faith through the Holy Spirit. That's the answer to the big mystery. Now we have peace with God because of Jesus' work for us. So what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Well, what, by what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, also of the Gentiles, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Romans 4, 4 4-5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is owed to him. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So therefore, faith is the instrument by which we are saved. And faith is a gift. It's granted to us to be exercised only by, the, only by believers. Um, I took the, uh, the point in the next section that faith's object is Christ, and I've kind of already touched on that. So when we breeze by that, you're going to be like, what? That's, that's why I moved it. Um, so we've looked at repentance and faith. Now let's move to this next section. What time do we stop, Ryan, by the way? Okay, thank you. All right, we're going to talk. We're going to focus in on disciples and not decisions. Um, let's briefly talk about the Second Great Awakening. I am not an expert on the Second Great Awakening um, by any means, but I thought that this was helpful. Um, there is a church historian around nowadays who's in the R.C. Sproul kind of camp named Steve Nichols. You guys know Steve Nichols? He does that podcast, Five Minutes in Church History, which is an excellent podcast. But he, he did kind of this sketch for Table Talk magazine um, a while back that goes over the Second Great Awakening and kind of its leading proponent, Charles Finney. Have you guys heard of Charles Finney before? He was kind of the biggest proponent um, that caused the shift in American Christianity that brought in sort of the sort of uh, revivalistic, uh, altar call-ish sort of practices in, in um, evangelistic type events. Um, and so... What Nichols says is this, he says, in Finney's practice of revivals and in his writings, Finney bequeathed to American Christianity what what he called the new measures. These included prolonged meetings, dramatic, if not theatrical elements, naming people publicly for their sins and calling them publicly to repentance and to the anxious bench. 
in front of the stage. The Puritans before him spoke of someone under conviction of sin as being in a state of anxiety. Think of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian at the beginning, that state of anxiety. The, the Puritans thought of them as in a state of anxiety. That person was soul anxious. Before Finney came, if sinners felt conviction of the Holy Spirit during a sermon, they would notify the pastor after the sermon, usually waiting a few days. The minister would then pay a pastoral call and counsel the sinner. Finney's new measure of the anxious bench changed all that. Finney instituted the altar call, pleading during the prolonged service for sinners to come forward and to kneel at the bench in front of the platform, confessing their sins right then and there to be saved. The new measures were necessarily bound to Finney's theology, which was also not only new, but an intentional and decided departure from Calvinism and from the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that dominated the First Great Awakening. Perhaps B.B. Warfield best summed up Finney's deficient theology when he observed that you could remove God from it and it would not change much of anything. Finney started lectures, of his revi uh, I'm sorry, lectures on revivals and religion with this. He said, religion is the work of man. It is something for man to do. Um, now, I don't have a lot of time to get into this and it's unfair. Make your own judgment on, on like what you see from what Finney has taught and, and the effects of it. Um, I'm not saying that altar calls are necessarily bad. I was saved at one, okay? I was, I am, God used that. The point in all of this is not that, oh, I, um, you know, it, it's, it's not the means that he uses. Um, if the gospel message is clearly preached at an event, Whatever happens, if there's drama on the stage or if there's people coming down to the front or whatever, God is going to save a person when he wants to save a person. End of story. It doesn't matter the form it takes if the gospel is preached. But um, it definitely propagated a lot of false converts because it, it, it at least down the road turned into a bunch of decisionalism. It turned into... Decide for Christ. Who, who wants to be saved? Raise your hand. Sign this card. Pray this prayer. Doing all of that, if God has pulled you out of darkness and put you into light and saved you from your sin, signing your card is fine. But, but to, to preach it, the danger is not preaching the clear gospel or making it seem like you're just making a decision and it's not a life change. It's not a conversion from death to life. That category doesn't really need to be there. It's just grace. God is going to give you grace. Um, the point of this whole talk is, to, is that we are making disciples, not just decisions. Okay, so some of the decisionalism that we've seen in churches and in practices that we've been a part of kind of stems from the Second Great Awakening, and before that it wasn't really a thing. I wanted to focus on um, just the idea of healing the wound lightly. Um, it says in Jeremiah 6, 10 to 15, God speaking to Jerusalem before their impending uh, captivity by the Babylonians coming in and taking them away because of their sin. God says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet and priest, everyone deals falsely. 
prophet and priest have, dealed, uh, have healed the wound of, wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not all ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. So the state of the unconverted person is this kind of state, okay? Um, it's not enough to just make a decision. Something more fundamental has to happen because people in their natural state have ears that are uncircumcised. They cannot hear. People in their natural state hear the word of God, but they take no pleasure in it. People in their natural state sin, and they don't even know how to blush. That, that means that like, they don't have the capacity to blush at sin. Um, it's so commonplace. That's just how our seared conscience works when we're not in Christ. There's a story, um, and I hope this is true. You always wonder with stories. I heard someone say this once, and it's just like, I couldn't find it anywhere else. Hopefully it's true. But the week after Charles Spurgeon died, a preacher took the pulpit, and after the sermon did an altar call. A reporter who had been part of the church and had known Mr. Spurgeon and sat under his preaching went up to the new preacher after, and he said, I noticed that you did an altar call after the sermon. Mr. Spurgeon never did that. The preacher replied, I like to strike when the iron's hot. To that, the reporter replied, I think Mr. Spurgeon would say to that, if the iron's hot on Sunday, it will be hot on Monday morning as well. And that's the thing. If it is a sovereign work of God, you don't need to work people up because what if they leave? What, what if they go? What if they go? You can't control that. What are you going to do? Are you going to play the song longer at the end of the service? Are you going to talk more softly with your voice? Are you going to shout louder with your voice? Is it, is it you, O messenger, that is going to change the person? Or are you just the messenger? Okay? It is God who converts. If, if God calls a sinner, that person is coming. We could not have resisted that. Are we going to strive against God and say, God, I'm not coming? God does the, God does the work. So again, the overarching point is that we're, while all of these things that I'm talking about um, are not necessarily bad, and a lot of it is part of it, it's not merely those things is the point. Again, a categorical change has to happen, a sovereign work of God that we could not do for ourselves. So just a couple sort of implications to, to leave with. Um, regarding our own assurance of salvation, and we're going to touch on this later on in the course like the last week. Um, I want to encourage you um, to meditate and think deeply on the truths of Scripture. Okay? The promises of God, like we did at the beginning. We opened Psalm 103 and we looked at all of his benefits toward us. Um, there's a, an excellent song uh, by Matt Merker and another lady, I forget who it is, but um, he will hold me fast. And, you know, in this life, we are, we are weak. Even as Christians, we are, we are just like struggling a lot of the time. And in this, in this hymn, I really love it. It says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. 
He will hold me fast. And then it says, he will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. Um, and that is that faith resting in, look, I, if, if it were dependent on my grip by faith, uh, my, my just, like, I'm only going to do this because of my sheer willpower. Faith plays a part, but uh, I could never keep the hold. It, 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 it would be lost. My faith, uh, or my, uh, my salvation would be gone, but it's not dependent on me. Verse 2 says, Though he, those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. That's what he thinks about us Christians. Um, he'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. So I encourage you to meditate on those promises for the good of your own soul. Because remember, you're assured not by looking back at that decision that you made, okay? You're mainly assured by Christ. I see Christ and I trust in Christ. That is the main, the main way we are assured. And there's also other testings of assurance, like in First John, where we see if we uh, say we have no sin, um, the truth is not in us, you know? Or if we... Um, all those tests. You know what I'm talking about in First John. Number two, um, we want to think rightly about church membership um, in light of this doctrine. Mike Lawrence says in his book, where we're largely taking a lot of the, the uh, material from, um, he says that a faith that identifies with Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be separated from a faith that identifies with Jesus' people. He quotes Gordon Smith, who said, Conversion is not merely a conversion to Christ. It is an initiation into Christian community. Christian faith is distinctly social. So it, it doesn't make sense. It's not biblically coherent for us to love Jesus and not really want to be a part of the body, not be an active member in the church. Okay? So in our shift from worshiping idols to worshiping God, part of that worshiping God is necessarily loving and serving his people. Okay. And then shifting over to evangelism, um, part of that shift from worshiping idols to worshiping God is necessarily wanting to share this with others who do not believe. Um, if, if any of us in this room do not believe, God calls us by the means of the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life in our place. He's the only remedy for sin that God will ever, has ever provided, and he is sufficient. If you turn away from your sin and trust in Christ by faith, God will save you. But I'm talking about if you truly repent and if you truly believe, not lightly like we've talked about. Um. God does not need our techniques and our savvy words. He does not need our sales pitch. Salvation is the work of God. We are mere messengers in our evangelism. We need to just faithfully give the message and let God work. Um, we can be persuasive. We can say it in a way that adorns the, the biblical message, um, that, that uses God-sanctified reasoning 
but we don't need the smoke and mirrors. We don't need, we don't need the extra trappings. It's not as if those things are going to work anyway. And lastly, um, on offering words of assurance to others, we want to be sure that I've, I've struggled with assurance in the past. And one thing that was very kind, but not necessarily the most helpful is hearing someone say, oh, you're a Christian brother. Um, uh, perhaps he knew me well enough. He didn't really know me that well. Like, it's different when someone knows you and walks through life with you, but like kind of sees you from afar and just that assurance comes. And on, on the one hand, it's like, well, that's good to hear. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but I, don't, I can't rest in that. And I shouldn't, you know? So we, Mike Lawrence says, we can't presume to see the heart of those around us, but it's the work of the church to hear professions of faith, to consider such fruit that they see in each other's lives and to offer assurance to the repentant, okay? So we want to be wise in how we offer assurance to people. We don't want to be those It's just like, well, you better prove it to me. That's, that, that doesn't really cultivate the kind of thing we want. We want to hear, oh, you profess to be a believer. Continue on, brother. Continue on. I see evidences of grace, sister, in your life. Um, keep going. Keep, keep striving um, because you've been saved. And particularly because we don't want to give the uh, unrepentant a false sense of assurance in the church. We don't want members who are living contrary, like people who are under church discipline, we don't want to assure them because it's by grace alone, through faith alone. And if you, if you just say you believe, but that produces a certain fruit, Jesus says. You will know the tree by its fruit. And so we want to be careful as we navigate that. Do you guys have any points to bring up, any wisdom you guys want to share, um, questions about anything I said? I, I know I've left you with no time to do that. <laughs> Sorry. Love to hear from you if anybody has anything. Uh-huh. God. Amen. Yeah. Samantha's just saying that the, um, the books that she's reading, um, you can condense the gospel down to 200 words and get it out there. And um, as concise and clear as it is, it's really God who does the work. And it's not, it's not anything of ourselves, no matter how concise or, or clear it is. We want to be clear for sure, obviously. Yeah. But um, it's really the work of God at the moment he wants to do it. Um, and it's nothing of ourselves for sure. Anybody else? All right, let me, let me pray for us and I'll dismiss us. Uh, God, I thank you for um, being gracious to us and, to, and for, for taking us out of the miry clay and setting our feet upon a rock. May this, 
this whole topic stir in us um, a reminder of, of your goodness toward us and your loving kindness and how you have dealt so lovely and kind to us, God. You have, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Help us to meditate on the excellencies of God and help us to meditate on the promises of God uh, as we walk by faith day by day, as we live a life of repentance day by day. Thank you that uh, you paid it all, Jesus. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.